Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Electric utilities are somewhat in the crosshairs because people feel they are a very large contributor to the uh, effluent that goes into the air and contributes to global warming. In fact, they've been working very, very hard for probably the last decade to move off coal, off natural gas and into renewables. But nonetheless, there is more that can be done. At the center of the electric utility industry's investigation into energy science is the Electric Power Research Institute, an extraordinary agglomeration of talent uh, divided between the East Coast and the West Coast. And today, I'm very fortunate to have as my guest, Ashad Mansur, its president, its CEO, and at this time in its history, its very articulate driving force. Ashad, welcome to the broadcast. Have I characterized EPRI in the right way? You have characterized EPRI in the right way. Our science is what creates our foundation. I think the only one, another additional add is we have talented scientists, economics experts at EPRI, but we do work with national labs and universities globally. And that is the combination of knowledge that helps us to tell the truth about power to people in power. Now, this was founded back in the energy crisis and uh, actually before the energy crisis, if you take it chronologically, 1972, I believe, the energy crisis struck a year later and uh, the rest is history. Uh, could you give us some idea of the kinds of projects outside of government, the kinds of projects you work on to make electricity delivery cheaper, more efficient and cleaner. So our, um, if you look at our focus, especially as we start this new decade, it is clear while producing electricity was a contributor to greenhouse gas, but it's even more clear that electricity will be the tip of the spear to get to a clean energy solution because electricity can be produced cleanly. If you look at the last 20 years in US, the emissions from producing electricity has gone down by more than 30%. However, if you look at emissions across the board, transportation, buildings, and industry, that has remained almost essentially flat. So this is the decade where electricity will continue to get clean and we will continue to electrify, especially transportation. So that's a key area that EPRI is working on. But the other side of the coin of decarbonization is the science of global warming and how it impacts extreme weather is becoming clearer and clearer. So as electricity becomes the fuel for this clean energy transition, we need to make sure we have an electrical system that is resilient to the future extreme weather that we all are seeing even today, but see more in the future. So that's a decarbonization and resilience and adaptation. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about resilience. Um, I make jokes about, you know, we talk resilience and then when some bad weather comes in, your local utility tells you to go out and uh, uh, clean out the refrigerator and get some canned food and uh, oh, batteries and anything else that will get you through some hours of deprivation if you lose electricity. And, the way we live in this part of the 21st century, the deprivation 
on losing electricity is just enormous. Um, can we get to a point where we don't have these blackouts, where there is true resilience? Uh, can we improve the data? Can we improve the out the? Can we reduce the number of outages? I think a great question. We should all always strive for a system that is resilient and that provides even better quality of power. To do that, there is some significant fundamental thinking that society has to do. And one of them is we shouldn't wait for the next storm. We shouldn't wait for the next flood. We shouldn't wait for the next extreme cold or extreme heat. We have the science now to predict what these weather variables will look like in 2030, 2040, 2050. We also have the science to bring that locally to look at what will it look in your region. And that's really what we're doing in our initiative that we launched yesterday at the, on Thursday, Washington DC Press Club is climate ready, climate resilience and adaptation initiative, proactively work on resilience I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about Ready. That's the acronym, uh, capital R E A D, small I, which uh, has a sort of Madison Avenue aspect to it, if I might say so. Um, the, the 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 we hear all the time that this utility is set a new goal, that utility is closing a power plant, a coal-fired power plant, and. Um, there's a lot of announcements that you would think the entire utility industry, all 3,000 utilities in the United States are moving without any coercion towards a cleaner future. And yet you already suggested this isn't going fast enough, that you need a new tool, a new impetus, a new driver. So Ready is addressing a specific part, a very important part of the climate. So one is decarbonization. As you say, we are transitioning out from coal. Wind and solar is coming. We're seeing amazing advancement in small modular reactors and advanced reactors. Carbon capture and storage is again back as a key tool. But even if we continue to do that, the warming that has already happened and will continue to happen will cause extreme weather both frequency and severity to, to increase. So I use this simple example. The industry, the electric sector globally has done a great job after an event. Uh, Hurricane Harvey happened. That was, un it's a disaster for people. As people rely on electricity for their heat, as they rely on electricity for really their life, we saw what these events can happen. And after Hurricane Harvey, the utility went ahead, looked at all their substations and found out that they will need to raise those substations because flooding that happened at that level is no longer one in a hundred years. Just remind us a little bit about a hobby and where it hit. It hit in, in, in primarily in Texas. Uh, Houston was badly affected and that's just one of the storms. We have heard about other storms, but the question now is, how many other substations that are critical for the society throughout the United States are in a place where that type of flood could happen? Yeah, tell us, Shard, if you may, if I may, could you tell our viewers and listeners what is a substation and what role does it play? 
A substation is, you will see when you are driving, these are where transmission, the big lines, you take power from them and you convert it so that it comes to your house. So it's almost a converter station. They're very critical if a substation floods or if a transmission line because of high wind and rain topples, these are what creates the outages and climate ready is focusing on can we proactively invest? Because imagine 2040, imagine you know, five out of 10 cars are electric. So now your transportation needs electricity. Societal dependence has increased considerably. If another storm happens like that, we can't afford to lose power for four days because society now depends on electricity even more. So time has come to really have a science-based approach for climate risk mitigation because no amount of clean energy will stop this extreme weather frequency and severity that we are seeing going on. So we got to do both. Clean the system, not just the electric system, transportation, buildings, and industry. But on the other hand, make sure we have a more resilient energy system, especially electricity. How do you interface with the electric utilities? You are their research tank. You are their laboratory. How do you interface with them? How do you uh, get them to adopt your suggestions, your developments, your technologies? Uh, many ways. Um, we engage with almost 450 energy companies across 45 countries. So it's beyond the United States. We engage with the experts that are in the utilities, the engineers, the scientists, and our experts work with them to understand how technology and solutions can be deployed. We don't develop technology. Startup companies, universities, national labs, that's a great talent pool where technologies are coming out. What we do is we, in a completely scientific and unbiased way, assess these technologies and see how it can be scaled up and deployed by the electric utilities. And it's a strong collaboration with outside experts in national labs, but also a strong collaboration with people who are keeping the lights on working in electric utility. If I'm running a medium-sized utility, say in Texas or anywhere else in the country, um, how would I avail myself of READY, how would I be the beneficiary of READY? So READY will first join the initiative. You know, you saw some of the energy companies- I, oh, 13, I think, were the- 13, yeah, that's just the start. But the whole world will benefit from READY. The society will benefit from READY because READY will produce the most consistent and comprehensive framework for both climate risk assessment and resilience and adaptation measures that could be taken now and convincing stakeholders, regulators, policymakers that energy is becoming so critical in our life, we can wait for having another Katrina in 2035, maybe with even more severity. We need to start working now proactively for a more resilient system. Ashad, tell us something about yourself. How do you come to be sitting in this critical position as the head of research for the entire electric utility industry? It's a pinnacle. How did you get to it? Well, it is an honor 
It's an honor to uh, work with our EPRI team, to work with the industry. I don't take that lightly. Um, my journey focusing on energy and power started where I was born in Bangladesh. And uh, at that time, the country was growing. Uh, resilience and reliability was not the main thing. Abundance of energy that is available was the primary thing. And uh, when I came to U.S. for my master's and PhD, uh, I decided that electricity, working out to make electricity cleaner, more affordable, more resilient is a societal mission. And that embraced me. And I have been engaged with EPRI starting from my college days where EPRI funded research that I was working on and had the opportunity to join EPRI right after my uh, graduation and has just worked with so many experts. And then that's where I am right now. But at the end of the day, every day, I think this is not a job. This is a mission for the future. We should leave this planet to our next generation, not in a way that we are progressing. We should leave our planet as a better place for our next generation. And that motivates me and motivates EPRI, motivates our members. Electric utilities, while it's a business, serves the need of the society. If we uh, are to measure the Electric Power Research Institute, what sort of measures? How many employees? How much budget? Give me just one measure. I mean, so one measure is the amount of research resources that we have available to us on an annual basis. And that's roughly last year was $440 million. Came from the 450 energy companies, but also came from California Energy Commission, NYSERDA, Department of Energy, Department of Defense, because a clean energy system that is resilient is also very important to all these organizations. There are 1,100 talented staff at EPRI, but thousands of people that we work with, other experts, both in utilities, national labs, and universities. And maybe one statistics that people may not know, especially in the US, um, one third of our research is actually funded by utilities and energy companies worldwide in Europe, in South Africa, in South America, in Asia. And that gives us a unique opportunity because this clean energy transition reliably and affordably is not just a US opportunity and challenge. It's a global opportunity and challenge. And EPRI being a global organization, collaborating with the utilities and the experts, we're in a unique position to really make this transition, but we have to be careful. The transition has to be made in the right way. If you see what's happening in Europe now, where energy price has gone up significant, we have to be very careful in this transition that it doesn't impact negatively, especially the people for whom paying another $100 a month is not just, it's not possible. So this care of the transition in a thoughtful way is really what EPRI's mission is. You and I have something in common, and that is we both, uh... Uh, grew up in parts of the world that were very, I myself in Africa and in, 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 in the subcontinent. Uh, we know about poverty and we know the difference that electricity makes and we know it in a way that other people can know of it but not know it. Uh, how do you see the world that has no electricity? Billions of people have not had the benefit 
of turning a switch to ease their lives, what is the best technology to bring electricity to them safely, quickly, and cleanly? I think you mentioned a key point that sometimes we don't realize. There are more people in the globe world today that doesn't have electricity than the number of people who didn't have electricity before Edison invented the light bulb. And to bring electricity to the masses, we now have a wonderful opportunity. It's a, we can do two things. We have done the infrastructure. We will build generation plan transmission. That's how we have electrified the world. And that is needed. But now we have an opportunity to quickly through microgrid, through local grids, bring electricity and energy to communities. And down the road, it takes time to build transmission lines. It takes time to build big power plants. But down the road in sub-Saharan Africa, in rural villages in Bangladesh, these small microgrids could be connected to the national grid when national grid build out happens. So you need to build your national grid, but it takes time to do that. Before, if we didn't have, if the country didn't have enough resources, it's hard to invest in billions of dollars. But now you can invest in millions of dollars and produce microgrid locally. So I think that is a unique opportunity that this decade has given us because the way solar, wind, batteries, their costs have come down and how microgrid can be deployed. So I see microgrid and national grid as not either or. I see microgrid as a rapid way to bring in electricity to the masses and down the road they will be integrated to the national grid. And when you started talking to me in this conversation, you mentioned uh, the clean energy technologies, wind, solar, and you mentioned small modular reactors, but these are still really in the laboratory, aren't they? They're not really, they're not in the marketplace. Only one small modular reactor will very soon be in the marketplace. That's new scale, which is a, a promising technology, but there are a lot of others that are really more cutting edge. And yet I don't see, and other people I've interviewed do not seem to see the mechanism for bringing those into the marketplace in the US, different in China and different uh, in other parts of the world. But here, uh, there is some both structural and economic impediment to introducing new nuclear. Um, if you look at small modular reactor, and not just new scale or the GEBWRX, but the future ones, it's a tool that we would, and if you asked me this question two years ago, I would not be an optimist. But we have seen significant changes just in the last six months globally. In US, you have seen changes. States like West Virginia that did not have nuclear as you know, they actually prohibited nuclear, has changed their laws because the, today's coal plants could be the future SMR plants. You have France, Korea, other countries where nuclear was not part of their clean energy transition goal, they have changed it. They can see how energy security is impacting. So how in the US that will happen? We are seeing some amazing opportunity really led by Department of Energy, Department of Defense and National Labs. Because these early units, we fully expect before this decade is over, you will have several fully functional small modular reactors that are current technology, at least one 
reactor that has the opportunity, advanced nuclear reactor, high temperature molten salt that can provide steam or electricity or hydrogen, whatever the flexible need is. And we also will see a demonstration, actual deployment of a micro reactor in Alaska by Department of Defense. These are five 10 megawatt reactors. US led the nuclear renaissance back in the 70s, the large plants. We can lead the renaissance with the small plants that are inherently more safer. You know, one of the technology that we are looking into has a nuclear, it has fuel that would last 60 years. So imagine you install the plant, the fuel lasts for 60 years. Almost all of them have inherent safety built in. So if you lose power, like what happened in the tragedy in Fukushima, you still have a way to cool the reactors. The world has changed, but DOE, DOD, government, they have to take the lead to de-risk some of the early deployments. And if you're looking beyond 2030, 2040, 2050, we must have new tools in our toolbox. Wind and solar and battery is not going to clean the world. It will be an extremely important part of cleaning the electricity system. But you have industries that needs cleaning. You have transportation. A ship will not be able to go across the Atlantic on batteries. So we need to think about new fuel, hydrogen, liquid ammonia produced from clean electricity. Clean electricity can come from nuclear, wind, solar, carbon capture, and sequestration. So I think the opportunity that we have now in the US, the US in nuclear reactors, SMRs, is, and you hear it from Secretary Granholm, you hear it from DOE, they have put the significant ramp up of R&D and demonstration. And if those deployments this decade, have no reason to believe that they would not be very successful. That would usher the next decade where now we got wind and solar and we got small modular reactor. There's a work happening on carbon capture and storage primarily by energy companies outside the electric. So a combination of this technology, and it's one of the critical thing at EPRI is, people will say, Ashad, why are you working on advanced nuclear? Because you know, we've been hearing about it, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, we work on all technologies, even if it is not popular to work on them. So we haven't lost sight on carbon capture and storage. We haven't lost sight on nuclear, but we also know wind and solar, you can do it today. We expect in US, just in the US over the next 10 years, we would triple the amount of wind and solar power that we have today. So it's not an either or, it is a composite of technology. Some of them are mature. Some of them needs government funding for de-risking the early deployment. And combination of them will give us what we need. In your marvelously articulate explanation of the choices before the country, you mentioned storage, but somewhat in passing, yet wind and solar are hugely dependent on storage if they're to be fully utilized and uh, not to be a burden to the systems on which they are established. Um, what about batteries? What about storage? Uh, is, is the battery future the only future? Is there another way of storing electricity, uh, possibly 
uh, in hydrogen, possibly visiting the old technology of pump storage. Um, tell us about storage. Well, storage, you know, it's hard to predict the future, but one thing you can absolutely predict is as we ramp up wind and solar globally, we will need more flexibility in the system. Flexibility to operate the system when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. Flexibility to take the wind and sun when it is blowing and shining, but we don't need the electricity to store it. We see storage as a continuum, starting with storage that are two hour, four hour, six hour, eight hour. That's what you need today. That's the flexible resource that we need today. And lithium ion and batteries are getting better and better and better. I mean, I could see 12 hour batteries coming up in the next four or five years. 500 megawatt of batteries is just going to be installed in California. So batteries have a huge role, but now let's say you need two days, three days storage. And when you start bringing in this much wind and solar, you will need seasonal storage. And that's where long, so it's three months worth of storage. Today we have that, that's natural gas. We store natural gas under the ground. So winter time, we take that out. So storage today is natural gas in the energy system. That level of storage, that amount of storage really cannot be done with batteries. And that's where hydrogen, the most interesting pivot that we have seen, hydrogen was seen 20 years ago as a solution for small you know, fuel cells or transportation. The first Honda Mirai was a hydrogen fuel cell car. We have evolved now to know, you know, we can do those with electricity pretty easily. But what we cannot do with electricity is store it for three months. But if we can convert electricity to hydrogen, if we can convert it to liquid ammonia, which is a hydrogen derivative, these are things that you can store for months at a scale of gigawatts. And that's really where the research is happening. Pumped hydro is a hundred year old technology. It still works. You just need the right environment and you got to do it the right way. But hydrogen in the long term is really the opportunity to replace the storage. You know, what we say is our pipeline, gas pipeline and gas storage infrastructure is going to be critical for the clean energy transition. Because in the future, what it will be transporting and storing may not be just natural gas. Could be a combination of natural gas, renewable gas, synthetic gas, it could be a combination of hydrogen. We're just working now in New York at an actual power plant that we are blending 40% hydrogen with natural gas and running a turbine that is producing electricity that is connected to the New York grid. So I think longer term beyond this decade, that's what will drive the transition, but we got to redouble, supersize our innovation this decade so that we have opportunities in future decades. Ashad Mansur, president of the Electropower Research Institute, you are as fascinating as you are articulate. Thank you so much for joining me on the broadcasts today. And for our viewers and listeners, that is our show for today. Where I am in New England, it's beautiful at this time of year and before bad weather, whatever occasions it comes in, I'm going for a walk. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.